welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joe Winebanks, Joyce Vance, and me, Kimberly Atkins Store. Barb is away, but she will be back next week. And while we always end our show with listener questions, and we really love doing that, this past week, we got so many great queries about the Supreme Court. So we're starting the show by answering a bunch of your questions about the SCOTUS, about the recent uh, draft opinion on Roe v. Wade. We're taking those questions directly from you. So that's how we're kicking things off today. Then we'll talk about redistricting and in Florida, a court ruling that is raising constitutional questions about Governor DeSantis's map drawing. And finally, we'll talk about the latest January 6th news, including the January 6th committee issuing subpoenas to members of Congress. It's quite the historic event. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But first, you guys, I need some summer reading recommendations. I'm, I'm particularly looking for fun things that are not necessarily legal related or politically related, but if that's what you're reading, it's okay too. But I would love them. I think our readers would love them too. So what are you guys reading right now? Joyce, what about you? You know, I'm rereading some old favorites this summer. Every once in a while, I indulge and want to revisit. I love Margaret Atwood. I know everyone always talks oh. about Handmaid's Tale, which I like, but I'm rereading Oryx and Crake, which is sort of a dystopian universe, what you would expect from Atwood. Exceptionally well done. And I love it. I can't say it's light reading, Kim, but it's a lot of fun. I'm a huge Atwood fan. I've been reading Atwood for years, long before A Handmaid's Tale. Actually, I didn't read that like that. It, it, I tried and it started giving me nightmares, so I put that down. But I love all the rest of her books, so that's a good, that's a good uh, recommendation. What about you, Jill? What are you going to read this summer? So, like most of us, there's very little time for pleasure reading. But I am finding pleasure in a history book by Garrett Graff. It's a Watergate scandal history, and it is so well written. It's not based on, as far as I can tell, any original research, but just a compilation of information from other people's books put together in just a fascinating read that I think is delightful and wonderful. I've also just gotten Don Winslow's City on Fire. Oh, I, know I have be, that. It's great. Yes, I, I know you'll love it. And I know I'll love it. Um, and I just finished, I'm trying to read banned books because I don't believe any book should ever be banned. And I just read the two series, the two volumes of Mouse. And it's a graphic novel. It's the first time I've ever read a graphic novel. And I highly, highly recommend it. It's, it's intended for readers of all ages, I would say. And it's a wonderfully touching story about the Holocaust. And I know that sounds horrible, but it isn't horrible. And it's so important that we all know what happened in the past so that it doesn't happen again. We need a summer reading book club. I want to read all of oh, these. Oh, that's a good idea. And I'm with you, Jill. You know, I have um, recently reread some of my favorite uh, books by Toni Morrison, by uh, for example, just other books that have been recently banned that just made me 
um, reminded me of how important they are to me uh, and how um, what great works they are. So I think that's a great recommendation. I know the the, the book, one book that is on my list that I want to read um, is the uh, autobiography, Just As I Am by Cicely Tyson. I love reading biographies and autobiographies of people who are inspiring in all realms, whether it be the arts or, or history or, or architecture or, or whatever. And that's one of them on our list. And I want to ask our listeners, why don't you tell us what you are reading? Tweet us and we're going to give you a special hashtag. You can use the hashtag SIL Summer Reading. SIL Summer Reading is the hashtag to let us know at Sisters in Law. And you can hashtag Sisters in Law too to make sure we see it. Let us know what you plan on reading this summer or what you have read that you can recommend to us. And we can get our little summer reading club started. Awesome. So it was pretty clear from the volume of questions we got about the Supreme Court and abortion law after the leaked draft opinion from Justice Alito came out last week that you guys want to know more. So we're doing something different this week. We are starting off at the top, taking several questions that we got from you, our listeners, to help you better understand not just the law, but how the court itself functions. We're going to get right to it. Our first question is from Katie, and she asks, can Alito, Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Gorsuch be impeached and brought to trial for lying under oath? So I think Katie is talking about is the idea that they um, were not truthful when they testified, when they were asked about Roe v. Wade during their confirmation hearings. Um, I can start with this. Um, If you go back, and I did, I went back and listened to everything that all of them said during their confirmation hearings. And at no point did any of them say they would not overturn Roe v. Wade. What they did they said that it was precedent. They didn't say that it was binding precedent. They didn't say that it was the law of the land. I know Susan Collins claims that uh, Kavanaugh said something different in her chambers, but he was not under oath in her chambers, and that's hearsay. Um, So as far as I can see, there is no perjury. They were under oath during their confirmation hearings, but I don't think that they perjured themselves. Um, if if a justice perjured themselves during their confirmation hearings or anywhere else and they are convicted of perjury, sure. The, the If the House wants to bring impeachment articles against them, they can. But I don't think that that happened here. And I think that that's very unlikely. I'll let you guys add anything more. Well, as add. all of our listeners have probably heard me say, my favorite perjury case is one that says a witness can be deliberately misleading as long as it's factually accurate. And I agree with you, Kim, that in this case, they all were very crafty and careful. We should expect more from Supreme Court justice nominees. But I don't think anyone committed perjury that's prosecutable. They said, it is a fact that Roe is precedent. They didn't say they liked it. They didn't say they wouldn't find it egregiously wrongly decided that they would want to overturn. And so, uh, unfortunately, I don't think there's a perjury case there, just badly misleading. Yeah, let me just steal a line from former President Obama and say, if you don't like what these folks did, don't boo, vote. 
Um, I just don't think that this is perjury. I think that this is part of the dance that Supreme Court justices go through when they're confirmed. We don't have to like that process or condone it. But if what you don't like here is that Roe versus Wade is about to be reversed and women are going to be treated as second-class citizens, then make damn sure you get out and vote in November and that everybody you know does the same. All right. Our next question is from Rebecca, who asks— Uh, Do Supreme Court justices ever consider the downstream impacts when issuing their rulings? And should they? Joyce, do you want to take a first shot at that? You know, it sort of depends on what you mean here. In In a legalistic sense, yes, justices do consider their rulings and how the lower courts will apply them, because in large part, the Supreme Court is tasked with creating clear rules that allow district judges and even the courts of appeals to understand the law and then apply it. To the extent that the court speaks to politics, I think that that, you know, let's just be honest, varies from justice to justice. Mm -hmm. In the last month, quite frankly, we've learned that the court protests a little bit too much about its lack of politicization and that at least some of its members are engaged in um, some games playing that one would hope Supreme Court justices would be above. What do you think, Jill? I I agree with Joyce. Um, I do think that there is consideration given to the impact. And I, I think if we look at even the Roe decision, and the discussion that has followed it for many years, there was the question of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's concept that taking it slower would have brought more people behind the decision. And Mm -hmm. so that's thinking about the political downstream impacts of the court's decision. And I think that maybe proved to be something that would have been a good idea. So maybe they should consider that. Not in the political sense of what's going to help the party that appointed me. That should never happen. And we see it happening in front of us now. And that's disgusting. Mm. Yeah. And I think even during oral arguments in the opinion, um, in the Dobbs opinion, where we have that leaked draft, we heard Justice Sotomayor ask, will will the court survive the stench um, Uh, of handing down a ruling that looks political. So I think they're certainly thinking about it. Another example I can think of is um, the Obergefell decision that um, gave the constitutional right to marry whom you wish, regardless of gender. Um, Justice Kennedy spent a great deal of time talking about how society shifted. And so clearly on his mind was how this opinion would land uh, in American society. Um, there is some discussion about whether that was a proper basis to to base that decision on and whether it was better just to do a straight equal protection legal analysis. But certainly that was on his mind. And it was it took up a great part of the decision to the point that I've been to several weddings, both of same sex and opposite sex, that quoted passages from that ruling because of what he said. So clearly that was on his mind. And, you know, I don't want to be a provocateur here and and rant and rave about what's going on in the court, except for the fact that I have found it increasingly difficult to keep my anger in check. Mm -hmm. And so here we have Justice Alito going out last night and giving a speech. He has to have known that this would have been covered, in which he objects to the application of employment law to protect LGBTQ people in the workplace. And he's literally advancing a conservative political agenda, a a case, an issue that's very likely to come up in front of the Supreme Court now that he's teed it up. 
And it's such a political exercise by a justice. I think, frankly, Alito is the one who I'm the most discouraged by at the moment. And let's be clear, the the Supreme Court has already taken up this issue when it comes um, to Title VII. Well, that's what he's railing against, right? He's saying we got it wrong, we should do it again. And you're talking about conservative. Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote that opinion saying that Title VII applies to LGBTQ folks the same way it applies to women with gender. And he's railing against, I mean, listen, the more I think about this, at first I thought, okay, I think Obergefell is probably safe after Roe because it has that additional backing of an equal protection analysis. And after that, and the more I think about it, I'm like, oh, you know what? I don't know. I don't know if it's safe. I worry more and more about it every day and especially with comments like that. Well, because you know, Kim, I mean, our history and tradition, and since gay people didn't have any rights at the founding of the country, there's no reason to believe that they should have them now, right? I mean, I think (sighs) everything is at risk. We need to wake up. We need to be paying attention to what is going on because our rights are being shredded, and we don't want to become willing participants in that process. And I think that Alito went way too far in, he thinks he does protest too much, in saying, now, this decision is only about abortion. Don't worry about the due process in mm. the same-sex marriage, for example, which is what we're talking about with this. And so it makes me very, very concerned that those are the next things on the agenda for the Supreme Court, which is now out there speaking in public and saying, hey, guys, here's a case you can bring. This is one I don't really like. And so I think it's really dangerous. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, So Jason uh, asks us, if Democrats were to get a stronger majority in Congress, could they theoretically pass a law for Supreme Court justices to abide by precedent and to follow certain guidelines like seeking congressional approval before they undo a precedent? I I like this question because it gets to a basic issue that I think is uh, really important, which is separation of powers and what powers Congress has. So Jason, generally speaking, Congress does have a check on the Supreme Court, but it comes in very specific places. One is the advise and consent uh, when it comes to the uh, confirmation process that's uh, in the hands of the Senate. Also, if there is some uh, wrongdoing alleged, the House can bring impeachment uh, proceedings against a federal judge, including Supreme Court justices, if they think that they need to be Uh, removed. And also, of course, if the Supreme Court hands down a substantive ruling on a statute, on statutory law, Congress can respond by passing another statute. A great example of that is the Lilly Ledbetter Act, where Ruth Bader Ginsburg in dissent said, we need a federal law that allows women to seek redress if they find out way after the fact that they've been underpaid uh, in, in an unequal way for years and years. Congress needs to act, and Congress did. That was the first law that Obama signed into uh, law. So those are the ways that the, that the Congress can check. Congress cannot force the Supreme Court to rule in any way, one way or another. They cannot force them to abide by precedent. That would be overstepping their constitutional bounds. I don't know if you guys had anything to add. You know, the only thing that I want to say is we have to be careful not to throw the bathwater out with the baby. Our whole goal here is to restore the balance of power between the three branches so that we can have a functioning constitutional republic. And so when we don't like what one branch of government is doing, we have to be really careful that we don't 
overreact in a way that could set off the entire constitutional balance. I'm nonetheless sympathetic to the question. Um, We do want the court to follow precedent, but we've got to let the courts be the court. And I would say the advise and consent function needs to be amended because we've seen, as we've just talked about in today's show, how ineffective the questioning can be and how misleading the answers can be so that nothing is gained from this hearing process for the advice uh, function. All right. So Diane asks us, have we ever granted a right and then taken it away federally? I think she's talking about uh, the granting of the privacy right uh, upon which Roe was based and then taking it away. I have an I have an idea. I thought of one, but I want to hear what you guys say first. Oh, I can't wait to hear what you have to say because I did some research and Ooh. I was really bummed because I, well, bummed and happy at the same time because I really couldn't find one. I found where cases had been overturned, it had been to grant a right that had been previously denied. But I couldn't find one where for 50 years people had enjoyed a right and then it was taken away. And if we have that precedent of that happening, well, then maybe Miranda goes, maybe a lot of other things go. So I can't Mm -hmm. wait to hear your answer, Kim. Well, Joyce, what do you think? Well, I'd heard people arguing that a case named Lochner, an old Supreme Court case involving the right to contract, that a right had been taken away there. But let me just debunk that myth. Um, Lochner involved um, an issue regarding whether a New York law that made it possible for a bakery owner to essentially contract his workers' rights away, whether that was lawful. Um, and and the court said, yes, that, that statute is okay. He can do whatever he wants. And then subsequently, fair labor standards overcame that. And so people have said, well, that was taking away rights. And that's just nonsense. We all have the right to contract, right? We can enter into contracts. We all have a contract to do this podcast. Nothing, <laughs> nothing missing there. Um, but of course, like any other right, there can be checks and balances. There can be restrictions on it. Obviously, women don't have a perfect right to get an abortion at any point in time. States are allowed to place reasonable restrictions on it, even under Roe. So that Lochner argument, it's a red herring. If somebody raises that with you, tell them that you know better. So here's my provocative thought. Um, What came to mind when asked this question, and it's different, and Diane asked federally, which is what uh, made me think of this, and it's a combination of the courts and Congress. So Congress passed a law called Section 1983. It was part of the Ku Klux Klan Act. And what that does is that it gives citizens a right to seek redress when uh, someone under the color of government violates their constitutional rights. And it came about uh, to protect against literal Ku Klux Klan folks, white supremacist folks who were acting as police, who were deputized or who were um, uh, public officials who literally terrorized black people. And it gave them a right to redress. What I think happened that took that right away was qualified immunity. It was a judicial doctrine, which basically nullified the ability of most people in most cases to seek a 1983 relief for violation of their civil rights. It's not the same as Roe, but it's a situation, as you said, have you ever had rights that were granted and then taken away? That feels to me like that could fall under that category. 
Um, so our next question is from Michelle, who asks, in the draft opinion by Justice Alito, he seemed to spend a lot of time criticizing past interpretations of the unenumerated rights granted by substantive due process. Would this include Miranda rights? Jill, you this sort of uh, you hinted at that <laughs> earlier. What what do you think? Well, as I said, we have a risk right now, um, given what's going on. And I think that it could be that other substantive rights, um, and maybe we should talk about, as prosecutors, we can talk about what's the difference between substantive due process and procedural due process. And substantive due process are the rights like the right to an abortion, the right to same-sex marriage, those are considered substantive due process, but the right to be treated fairly, to have a fair hearing, to have a speedy trial, those are more procedural rights. Um, and obviously the Alito decision deals with substantive due process. So Miranda would fall in the procedural aspect. But with the court having had such a broad definition of what it was doing, I think all rights are at risk. What do you think, Joyce? You know, I think it's an interesting um, question. I'm just going to indulge my inner legal nerd here and drill down a little bit on this notion of procedural and substantive due process that, that Jill laid out, because I do think it's really important for people to have clear definitions even though the courts don't do a very good job, to be honest, of defining what substantive due process is in their cases. But at, at least to me, procedural due process means, like Jill said, whether the government followed proper procedures before it deprived someone of liberty or property. Um, was the process fair is the essential question there. And then for substantive due process in, in that kind of litigation, we're asking whether the government in depriving a person of life, liberty, or property was it justified by a sufficient purpose? Was the decision itself fair? And so if you ever find that you're struggling with the distinction, this isn't a perfect example, but it's one that I like to use because it goes back to my, my um, practice as a federal appellate criminal lawyer in sentencing. And there were some rules. There's a big change um, in federal sentencing during my time practicing that required judges to completely redo how they did sentencing. There were a number of factors that they had to consider before they issued sentence. And if they failed to consider any of those factors, their decision could be reversed. That was procedural due process. Are you doing the process properly? Substantive due process, another issue for reversal, was if they got it wrong, if when they considered those factors on the merits, they misanalyzed them or made any bad decisions, that would be a substantive error that could also be reversed. So even though those are a little bit murky at times, I think it's helpful to keep them separate so that we can understand, as Jill says, what might be at stake in the future. All right. Our next question is from Kristen, who asks, what do law clerks do? How do they get their positions and how long do they serve? I think this is a great question. Have either of you been clerks? I have not. I went straight to prosecution. Ah. I did not, but my husband clerked um, and my husband has clerks. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So law clerks, these are people who work for judges. Um, they're usually new law grads, but I put asterisks by that. Um, and That's what changing. They, yeah, it's changing very yeah. rapidly. Um, 
And what they do is any number of things to help aid the judge. They conduct research. They can draft opinions, uh, draft memos about the state of the law, and help judges um, rule in the way that they do. And usually, as I said, traditionally they are new law school grads and they can either go to, um, I'm just speaking on the federal bench, for example, they can either be for trial judges, for appellate judges, or U.S. Supreme Court justices. Now there's kind of a pipeline where a lot of them will go through, there will be lower court federal uh, clerks. And that is from where the Supreme Court um, taps to to get their uh, to get their clerk, so they're sort of a pipeline, um, like a feed. They're called feeder courts or feeder judges that feed to the U.S. Supreme Court, based on uh, previous. Uh, the D.C. Circuit is a very big one, and so sometimes people clerk multiple times. They clerk four or five times before they even get to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, they're chosen, obviously, from the top law schools with the best uh, background. And one thing I do know about them, my friends who were clerks, uh, if they choose to go into the private sector afterwards, if they go to a big law firm, there is a nice, healthy bonus waiting for them <laughs> when they arrive. So it's not lucrative while they're clerking, but it certainly can be lucrative once they get out. So very quickly, one last question from Mandy. Would the Commerce Clause prevent states from enacting laws that keep women from traveling out of state to obtain abortions? Or is there another precedent Samuel Alito could conveniently toss out of the window? So I will say this. Um, I think an argument could be made from the Commerce Clause. I think a stronger argument about the right to travel comes from the Privileges and Immunities Clause, which basically says if you are a citizen of the state, you're entitled to the Privileges and immunity. Uh, immunities of any other state in the country. So you are protected by the laws of a state when you go to another state. So I think that is the best example. uh, And that has been cited to uh, confer a right to travel within the United States between states. So I I have, I'm fairly confident that these laws that try to criminalize or prosecute people for traveling out of state to get an abortion, that at least that section of the law might be struck down. But if I want to hear what you guys think too. Oh, you're way too, way too, um, you know, happy about this, way too <laughs> upbeat about this for me. Oh, no. Uh, let me tell you, uh, you know, so the the prior abortion cases, they've stayed out of this interstate commerce space. The, the question is not clear. And this is what I think is going to happen. It will depend upon how the issue is first raised. Mm. If there is a national abortion ban that comes before the court, the court is going to say, Abortion is absolutely commerce. And yes, absolutely, you know, it it can be um, legislated and Congress is correct to impose this national ban on abortion because this is a results-oriented court and they will rule however best uh, serves the purpose of making it virtually impossible for women in America to get an abortion. So, if so the, the case commerce comes, clause cuts both ways. Yeah, I mean, I think Oof. that they'll just, they'll have a results-oriented ruling. On the criminal question, I agree with you. It should be protected, but it's not going to be. And I think, you know, if there's a a statute that's passed, um, an aiding and abetting statute, for instance, you can't cross state lines with the intent to get an abortion or help someone get an abortion. I think we'll see that kind of a statute upheld for that same reason. This is just a results-oriented court. And if we don't understand that, 
then all we have to do is think about Texas, where Texas passes SB8, this ridiculous vigilante justice statute. And when we all read it for the first time, we said, of course the Supreme Court isn't going to con- allow this. This is nuts. You can't have a law that lets anybody nationwide go out and sue women. That's, that's just not how the rule of law works. And according to the Supreme Court, it does. And I just don't think anything is beyond them in this area. The one caveat I would have is that I would be concerned about the extraterritorial application of a state's laws. So, and I think you're right on everything you've said, but I would be concerned that if a state tries to punish someone who leaves to do something legal in another state and punishes that, that that would be giving extraterritorial application to their laws and that that's something that we cannot allow, maybe based on the, uh, you know, privileges and immunities protections that they have. I I hear that, Jill, but let me put a fine point on it. What they would criminalize is the intent that you had when you left state A. And I I think that that's the argument that they would make. We're not criminalizing getting an abortion in California, but if you leave this state with the intent to do that, that's a crime. It shouldn't be. You're absolutely right. It's it's just meshuggahs, right? It it makes a real hash of our our rights to travel. Um, But again, I have become really skeptical of this court and how far it's willing to go to keep women from exercising control over their own bodies. Well, I agree with your skepticism. And A court can do whatever it says because it's the Supreme Court, but I still think that might be going a step too far. I hope you're right. So Ron DeSantis, Florida's governor, apparently doesn't think it's enough to take on Disney World. After all, he's got a political opponent who could make his future difficult in residence down at Mar-a-Lago. So in an effort to out-Trump Trump, DeSantis has been focused on trying to remake Florida's state congressional maps in a way that benefits Republicans in a lopsided manner. It's pure political theater, right? He's just trying to set himself up to be the Trumpiest. Um, But it's a serious matter when it comes to redistricting in Florida. Kim, can you help us understand what it is that he's proposed how it impacts Florida voters, and why DeSantis is the one drawing up these maps in Florida anyhow. Yeah, so this involves uh, congressional maps uh, that Governor Ron DeSantis approved after vetoing a map plan that had been passed by the state legislature. And DeSantis's preferred maps, uh, his preferred map, essentially, among other things, dismantled the fifth congressional district in Florida, which is in northern Florida, which basically split up the black vote. And a court found that doing so, that map violated the Fair Districts Amendment of the state constitution because it diminished black voters' ability to elect candidates of their choice. It basically found that it was a racial gerrymander and it violated the state constitution. So the state can still appeal this matter. They are expected to. And so we have to see what happens in the meantime, right? The judge could issue a stay. The judge also indicated that he uh, he might be interested in imposing a quote-unquote plan A, which is a different set of congressional maps that the legislature drew up instead of the one that DeSantis wants. We have to see what comes next. 
So Jill, let's talk about that and, and what comes next. A big part of the legal challenge that's been filed is based upon the claim that DeSantis's plan violates the gerrymandering amendments in the Florida Constitution. Can you explain Florida law in this regard and why it's surprisingly less hospitable to the gerrymandering DeSantis is trying to inflict um, than some other state laws are? Well, I can tell you what the law is. I can't explain to you how Florida managed to pass this. It's That's crazy, right? <laughs> it is. It's who would have thought that Florida would be willing to pr- be more protective of minority rights than mm. most places? It's quite surprising. Florida amended its constitution on a voter initiative, and. They basically changed the rule, and as Kim described, there was one particular uh, congressional district that stretches basically across the entire top part of the state. It's quite long and narrow, and if you know, we call that Eastern Alabama. It's really long, and of course, if you know the map of Florida, the northern edge of Florida is, you know, very long, and then it turns into a very narrow um, extension of it. But anyway, they're, they're, they were um, amended for congressional and legislative. So it's not just U.S. federal congressional, but it's also the state legislature. And it says that they may not draw the map in favor of an incumbent or a political party or to deny racial or language groups equal voting rights equal opportunity to participate in voting. And they also said it must be contiguous, compact, and of equal population and use existing city, county, and geographic boundaries. But it's that first part that says they can't use bad reasons for doing this. They cannot draw it against a a minority group. And a judge has ruled that the DeSantis map violated exactly that constitutional principle. And it is a broader more robust protection than the federal constitution provides, uh, given particularly the Supreme Court decisions outlawing or or overturning the use of certain parts of our Voting Rights Act, uh, which we've talked about many times on on this case. So it's not final, the decision saying that this map is bad because it it can go and will go, no doubt, to the Florida Supreme Court. And so we won't know until then. Um, so in terms of what to do about it, um, you know, it was a ballot initiative and it's not final. And I, I'm not sure how much um, can be done to protect it beyond the fact that it exists in a state that now has Ron DeSantis as its governor. You know, it's interesting that Florida voters adopted this. Florida voters, for instance, adopted an amendment um, that made it legal for people who had a previous felony conviction to vote, something that they couldn't do before that. And every time Florida voters do something like this, their elected representatives try to undo it. So I'm waiting for the moment when there's this like uprising of consciousness in Florida and the voters say, wait a second, we don't want you guys screwing around with Disneyland. You know, we want people to do what we elect them to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, leaving that um, fanciful vision aside for the moment, Kim, so we've talked about, and I think our listeners know, that the Supreme Court rule is um, political gerrymanders are okay, racial gerrymanders aren't. But can you explain the reasoning behind that basic principle 
talk about it, how it plays out in reality. And, and here in Florida, this judge has ruled that DeSantis's maps are unconstitutional. Will that hold up under both the federal and state principles? Well, this judge specifically pointed to race. So you are absolutely right. The U.S. Supreme Court uh, has ruled for some time now that racial gerrymanders, which are congressional or, or state districts drawn specifically uh, for the purpose of trying to bolster or nullify uh, the political power of voters based on race is unconstitutional. But a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court ruled that political gerrymanders, which are districts drawn to favor one party or the other, not only is that not unconstitutional, but that the court itself has no jurisdiction to even rule on those types of challenges because it's called uh, what is called a political question which is up to lawmakers, and it has nothing to do with courts. So certainly what DeSantis is going to argue here is that this is a political gerrymander. It's no doubt that the way these maps are drawn, that it boosts the number of GOP-leaning districts. And But this is the problem with that Supreme Court um those two decisions is very often when you look at a racial gerrymander and you look at a political gerrymander, like the Venn diagram is a circle. It's the same thing. And I worried when that decision came down on the political gerrymander, if people would just use that as pretext in doing actual racial gerrymanders. So we have to see what the courts do as this goes upstream. But I think it's very likely that a claim that, no, no, this is a political gerrymander. We're trying to get more GOP districts. That could win the day, even when, as this judge saw, it's very clearly breaking up a black district to dilute that vote. It's yeah. super disturbing because, and, you know, shout out to Alabama here. We'll, we'll certainly be discussing more about this case because it's pending in front of the Supreme Court right now. But Alabama has, uh, has one district and they try to shove all of the black voters that they can into that one district so that that seat, which is held by Terry Sewell, a wonderful legislator, is considered to be a quote-unquote safe black seat, which just drives me nuts. And then they dilute black voting power every place else so that there's no hope that black voters can elect a representative of their choice anyplace else. Literally, if you look at the map, you can see like these two grabby hands reaching into the urban population centers in Montgomery and Birmingham, largely black, to make sure that they're all in one congressional district even though they're about an hour and a half away if, if you're doing the drive. And that illustrates what a serious problem gerrymandering is. So, so, Jill, I mean, we see that problem here. We see how politicians that are inclined to do this can draw maps in a way that lets them choose their voters instead of letting voters choose their representatives. But following every decennial sentence, these maps are redrawn, districts are locked in for the next decade, and while at least for now DeSantis's plan has been defeated, I think Kim is right. He'll come back and try to justify it as a political gerrymander and tell the court's hands off. So what's your advice? What options do voters have when bad maps like this are adopted? Is there activism that we can engage in to fight back? So let me first, before I answer that question, just say how upsetting I find it that the Supreme Court thinks that political gerrymandering is okay. And in yes. part, it's because of what you were hinting at, which was the diagram would look like a direct overlap. Basically, you would have the minorities are going to be one political party or the other. And so you can say it's a political gerrymander and it's okay. But if you said, no, I'm intending to break up the 
African-American vote, as happened in this fifth congressional district in Florida, and spread them out so they can't elect anybody anywhere because they're diluted in every single district. But it's political, and we want more Republicans. That's ridiculous. And if you look at the numbers in many of the states that have succeeded at this, you will have a, a minority, let's, let's say, for example, a black population that is X percentage, but they get 0% of representation because of the dilution. And so it's really horrible, And which leads to your question to me, which is what can be done about it and how do, how do people protect their right to vote and to be represented and to have a voice in government? And right now under the Supreme Court, this is tricky and it's not easy to answer. Uh, ballot initiatives are one way, you know, and voting in huge numbers is another way, but it's going to be hard to vote in huge enough numbers if you're diluted in successful ways. I will also say I've, I'm a longtime board member of the Better Government Association, and one of our, our real goals has been fair maps in Illinois. And we hired um, a demo, demographer to help us draw maps. And it's really hard not to interfere with existing representation and um, to, to draw a map that actually achieves the kind of diversity and fairness that you want. It's possible, and it's going to take a lot of effort, but there has to be a motivated group to do it. So it's going to be, I think it's a really important issue that needs attention and needs to be worked on. Right now, I'd say voting is the main thing you can do. Let's look at some of the hottest legal news this week related to the January 6th committee and the Department of Justice. There's a lot to cover, so let's get right to it. And I'm going to start with you, Kim. Members of Congress have been subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. And first, I want to get some facts on the table. Who's been subpoenaed and why? Yeah, so I think it's um, folks that we kind of saw coming uh, when it came to this investigation. We were wondering if they would actually subpoena their fellow members of Congress. We thought that they would. And when they did, uh, the, the, the cast of characters are uh, expected. It is They include Kevin McCarthy, who is the minority House leader. Also, GOP members Mo Brooks, Jim Jordan, Andy Biggs, and Scott Perry. And we know that these are people who uh, very likely uh, either admitted to being or suspected to being in touch with folks, including the president himself, on January 6th in the hours before, during, and uh, after the insurrection that happened following Trump's rally uh, on January 6th. And so certainly the committee is very interested in finding out what they know, what they said, and whatever other information they can get from them. All five of these members have been unwilling to voluntarily uh, cooperate with the committee, and that's why we see these subpoenas. And just one thing to add, there's another reason. Um, Perry was involved in trying to replace the acting attorney general with Clark, who would have carried out some pretty terrible things. Uh, that so is that's correct. another basis for why they're interested in it. But Joyce, this is considered unusual. 
Uh, reports have said that it's never been done before except for ethics violations. And so I want to ask, do you think this is a big deal? Do you think they have to testify? Do you think that there's any special privileges for members of Congress that they can avoid subpoenas that you and I or any other ordinary citizen would have to comply with? Short answer, no. I don't think that there are any exceptional privileges. That doesn't mean that they won't try to assert them and make stuff off up and, you know, whine and moan about how illegitimate the committee is and blah, blah, blah. But, but look, let me just put it this way. They should testify, but they're not going to. I just think it's very unlikely that they will. And if you think about it, you know, imagine a situation where there was a rash of thefts in Congress and there was a committee trying to improve the protection for Congress members' offices, right? They'd all be beating a path to the door to testify about what was stolen from their offices. But when it comes to testifying about an effort to steal democracy, they're not willing. And I think that we've gotten so bogged down in the details that we sometimes forget to just step back and take a moment and think about the fact that these people have information they could offer to a congressional committee whose mission is to write better laws to better protect us. And they don't want to participate in that. And that's, that's just truly awful. It also has at least two pragmatic applications. One is when the committee does its public hearings and presents the information that they've amassed to the American public, they will have the ability to say, you know, we tried to get these representatives' side of the story, but they wouldn't come in and talk to us. But here's all the evidence about what they did and how bad it is. And unlike in a criminal case where prosecutors are prohibited from mentioning that a defendant refused to make a statement or didn't testify at trial— and the reason, by the way, for that prohibition is because it makes you look so guilty when you won't tell your side of the story. Well, Congress won't have any of those restrictions. They can dirty these folks up. And I think it's going to be very damaging to them. And, and so they are stuck with the decision here. Do I tell my story or don't I? And then there's this practical implication that Hugo Lowell, who's a, a reporter for The Guardian, has raised. He's the only one that I've seen with this reporting, so I want to give him credit for it. And he says what he hears is it really puts Republicans in a box because they have said that they plan to, if they retake the House at the midterms, send out a slew of subpoenas to Democrats to talk about the witch hunt, right? I mean, it's like what they always do. And so if these Republicans are unwilling to show up now and testify, and then they send out subpoenas in the future, Democrats could, could just sort of blow off the subpoenas or even worse— they could go in and testify, sort of like what Hillary Clinton did in the illegitimate Benghazi hearings, and go and show Americans what true patriots do, that they sit through this painful, unnecessary, politically biased questions because they're elected representatives, and it's their obligation under the oath that they took. So I, I sort of have this, um, I'm almost hesitant to suggest that Democrats might finally have positioned themselves into a posture where they have the upper hand, but I think that they may be able to demonstrate some Republican hypocrisy here in a very stunning way when, when it's exposed to the public. Let me just ask you a follow-on question, which is, do you think it makes any difference whether they testify or not? Would anything be learned if they testified? Would they actually tell the truth or give any information? And if they don't, does it make any difference because the people it might matter to aren't listening anyway, only the MSNBC viewers would hear it, 
and the Fox viewers wouldn't. And uh, I just had an encounter with a friend who I learned actually believes that Trump won the election. So Yeah, I mean, it's a really yeah. important question. I think that's the committee's job, right? What they are tasked with is figuring out who are you talking to and how do you talk to them effectively? And there may be some percentage of the country that's been so exposed to misinformation that it's difficult to reach them. But I think that there are a lot of people out there who will be watching this carefully and it will be up to the committee to provide them with compelling information. I mean, not for nothing, but we've got never Trumpers in this country, folks at the Lincoln Project who have had some success at bringing people along so that's the continuing work. And then as to the first part of, of your question, is there information that could be learned? You know, as a prosecutor, I always want to talk to the firsthand witness. So I want to talk to Representative Perry and find out how did Jeffrey Bossert Clark, the DOJ, the, the acting um, secretary, or rather the acting attorney general for the civil division, who was this sort of pro-Trump front who Perry introduced to Mark Meadows and who ultimately came to Trump's attention— how did that come about? What were you doing? What were your conversations with the president like? Because these people will have intimate knowledge of Trump's state of mind. And if they offered truthful testimony, it would be important no matter what it is. I don't think we're going to hear the truth from them. They're beyond that. And is there any way to get them to testify, given that Meadows has been indicted, but I'm sorry, Meadows has been referred, but there's been no yeah. indictment. So is there any way to pressure them to, to testify? Well, there, we, we've talked about this a little bit before, that there are several mechanisms that um, the committee has. One was the referral, criminal referral for contempt. That's what happened in Meadows' case. They can um, seek civil contempt, which would probably take even longer than the criminal contempt. So yeah. that's technically a... a uh, an avenue, but not uh, feasibly um, one given our given the time constraints. Um, they could get the sergeant at arms to bring them in forcibly. <laughs> that is something that's available to them. I think that could. I think I'm not sure they they have the political stones to do that. Quite oh, yet. but imagine <laughs> the TV ratings. <laughs> <laughs> but an, but another one um, that my friend Aaron Blake brings up in. in in the post today uh, is they're members of Congress. So they Congress can pass a resolution that will impose fines on them until they comply. So this could be expensive for them, which I think that's something that they can should look into because those fines can accumulate for as long as they refuse to comply with this subpoena. So if they're looking for this, and of course, time is of the essence. They want to get this done. They're going to go to, the committee's going to go to its public-facing uh, phase by summer. They want to get this wrapped up by fall, certainly before the midterms. Um, and so I think that that is something that is worth considering, just trying to make them pay yeah. for it um, if they don't. But th those are the levers that the committee have. And you mentioned the um, midterms. So is there any political fallout after the midterms if Republicans take over the House because of these? I mean, I've heard it said that there's going to be retaliatory subpoenas issued to Democrats based on absolutely nothing, which seems absurd when these are clearly well-grounded. I mean, we can put in our show notes the letters that preceded the subpoenas that say why each of these people is needed. And yeah. so what do you think, Kim? 
Yeah, I'm done with the uh, analysis that says, oh, if Democrats do this thing, they risk that Republicans will do that back to them. And worse, when they're in office, they're going to do it anyway. Like we already saw Benghazi, like whatever they're going to do is going to be worse than that anyway. So I say why they have while they have the power, do whatever they can to get the most compliance that they can, because this is too important. This is not only finding out for the record, for history, for the American public, making it clear exactly what happened on January 6th and leading up to January 6th and why it's so important, but also what is happening next. The stuff we're talking about, and we're going to talk a little bit more about it with what Eastman is doing and stuff. This is going to keep happening. This is an ongoing threat. So to the extent that they can lay that out and be clear about it, there is nothing more important to our democracy right now than getting to the bottom of this. So I think they do whatever they can and don't worry about what Republicans might do later. Here, here, I'm totally with you. And um, let's turn now to the newly announced Department of Justice investigation of the boxes of classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago. They've been returned to the archives where they should have been all along. And uh, Kim, I'm going to start with you, then go to Joyce. Just give some background facts. How did the documents yeah. get you know, to Mar-a-Lago? And why does it matter that the documents were there and how were they discovered and how did they get returned? Oh, how ironic this is. I'm going to resist uh, the <laughs> urge to keep saying butter emails that the whole time that I'm, uh, I'm talking about this. But yes, the National Archives uh, had a, a sort of preliminary list of documents that were coming out of the White House that they expected to go to the National Archives. And several boxes never arrived. And uh, it was discovered that these boxes were at... Mar-a-Lago. Uh, upon further inspection, it was discovered that some of these boxes of documents contained, wait for it, sensitive information, classified information. And it is, of course, illegal to take classified information out of the custody of the federal government. And the National Archives notified the Department of Justice of this fact. So I look back at um, Hillary Clinton servers and and think, wow, how, what a long way we've come. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> there was the prospect of uh, a problem, and now we see actual, concrete, physical, classified documents sitting in Donald Trump's home as he is now a private citizen. So I have to say, first of all, I never expected that we'd be laughing during this episode <laughs> because these are really serious, sad things. But it, it really is, is laughable. And this is and some we're dark right to humor, laugh. though. It is. Yeah, it's but both. I'm delighted if you don't that we laugh, can. You're going to cry. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm I'm glad we're laughing. We need to do that. And anyway, um, this is the first DOJ grand jury regarding Trump. Um, in, in-house. I mean, we've had a U.S. attorney in D.C. in the Southern District of New York. Um, what would it take to prove the crimes of mishandling classified information or disclosure of classified information? And we don't know whether anything's been disclosed. We know it's been mishandled because it shouldn't have been there. There's no way right. it should have ever gotten there. There are two laws, 18 U.S.C. 1924 and 798, that um, could apply, but... The president 
when he was president, the former president now, but during his presidency, he could have declassified anything he wanted. So that would maybe be a problem. And I personally can't see him packing and lifting any of the boxes to purloin them over to Mar-a-Lago. So is there a chance that he could be charged with these crimes or some other crime or just that it would make you say, man, I don't want that man to be president where he could actually disclose confidential information? So why Americans weren't saying that anyhow is a little bit mystifying to me. But, you know, I want to tamp down on some of the enthusiasm here. I don't believe that this is, you know, a case that on the DOJ docket is captioned as United States versus Trump. I think that this is an inquiry into how these classified materials went astray. And DOJ legitimately doesn't know the answer. And they're using a grand jury investigation to find that answer out because if there is someone who knowingly removed those classified materials or stored them in an unsecure place, then there would be a consideration about whether those people, whether it's Trump or anybody else, should be indicted. It's a very... um, I mean, these situations have come up. You know, we we pointed to the Hillary Clinton situation. And the reason that at the end of that investigation, she was not indicted was because the government could not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that she had knowledge that there were classified materials on her private servers. But there's, there's a great case to consider where someone actually was indicted. And that's General David Petraeus. He gets Well, he actually pleads guilty to a misdemeanor 18 U.S.C. 1924 count for improperly taking and storing classified material. And the facts in that case are very illuminating. He takes his black books, you know, these notebooks in DOJ. It was green books. Jill, I'm sure you're familiar with the black books where government employees write their notes. And there's some classified material in in his notes, including... um, some code words, some some very sensitive data, and he knows it. And the reason we know that he knows that is he has communications with the woman he's having an affair with. He ultimately gives her his black books to use when she's writing uh, her own book, and he acknowledges that there is classified information in there. So what happens? Does he get lit up for a felony? He doesn't. He's permitted to plead to a misdemeanor violation. And that's because realistically, these cases can be tough to get a conviction in. Prosecuting them can actually expose classified information to public scrutiny, which you want to avoid. So the practice in the Petraeus case and others has been to permit these defendants to plead guilty to a misdemeanor. So let me just jump ahead and assume some facts that aren't in evidence, that there is some evidence that Trump was actually involved here. I mean, it could come down to a situation where he's offered a plea deal to plead to a misdemeanor. And it's really tough to imagine Trump walking into a federal courtroom and acknowledging that he's guilty and pleading guilty. So if he was, say, involved in directing people to pack up information that he knew was classified and to take it down to Mar-a-Lago, this could be quite a spectacle. But that takes a couple of evidentiary leaps to get there. And I'm just not frankly sure that that's where this is headed. I think Kim's notion, or maybe it was your notion, Jill, I apologize, that Trump didn't actually pack up these boxes and know what was in them. And they could have been sitting at Mar-a-Lago with no knowledge on his part. I think that's entirely possible. So Kim, let's just 
answer, why did the Department of Justice jump on this case where there remains, you know, a lot of other seemingly more more serious possible violations on bigger issues of the coup attempt, and we don't see any particular action on that? Well, I would just say I'm not sure that they have jumped on this. I know that they're investigating. I don't know if we know what comes out of this, and we don't know what they're doing with the other stuff, too. So I'm going to... Um, believe that the Justice Department is properly prioritizing these investigations uh, and these grand juries and that they know what they're doing. Okay, so let's talk more, Kim, about the January 6th committee as well as the Department of Justice. Let's go to something that's of interest to both of them, and that's Eastman's newest released emails. And can you tell us what's in them and why it's a big deal? That you know what it shows about the coup. Yeah. So just very quickly, it's very troubling. Essentially, Eastman. Uh, it was discovered because he used his University of Colorado Boulder email account to do this. Sent an email uh, to legislatures in Pennsylvania that essentially created this bogus mathematical scheme uh, that they could use to try to subvert the results of their election, basically saying you can use this mathematical equation to discount a certain number of mail-in votes, according, uh, of course, it was known that more mail-in voters would vote for Biden than for Trump uh, and dismiss them, uh, and then that they can use that as a basis for impeachment Imposing their own electors, sending their own Trump electors to certify the election for Pennsylvania in Trump's favor. It was completely bogus. One thing that it, that I find so disturbing about this is while it is ridiculous, um, it also is essentially a roadmap that I fear that other states may try to use in 2024. All right, we are now at the Q&A segment. Even though we started with questions, we're going to try to get at least one more in. If you have a question for us, please email them to us at sistersinlaw@politicon.com or tweet them using the hashtag sistersinlaw. And if we don't get to your questions during the show, keep an eye on your Twitter feeds throughout the week where we try to answer as many of them as we can. So we have a question from Barbara, uh, who at, not our Barbara, a different Barbara, uh, <laughs> who asks, what do you think about the revelations about the Eastman email? Of course, this is the email that was from Trump's former attorney. I think I've seen him referred to as a scholar. I don't think that that's true. But anyway, he used his uh, University of Colorado Boulder email account to craft uh, this bogus plan (laughs) to try to uh, help Pennsylvania uh, legislatures overturn the results of the election. So essentially, what he did, what I fear, could be replicated by other states, even though it's totally ridiculous, is try to put forward this mathematical equation to try to, on some prorated basis, prorated on the basis of nonsense, uh, to try to throw out a certain percentage of mail-in votes, which he thought would... uh, throw out enough votes for Joe Biden that Donald Trump could be certified as the winner. The state can impose their own electors 
and somehow changed the results of the election. I mean, he was trying to subvert democracy. Um, and these emails were turned over as a FOIA request to the University of Colorado because that's a public university and they're subject to FOIA. Um, so he wasn't very smart about this in a number of ways. But I do worry that this could set a terrible precedent. What do you all think? I think your comments about him not being very smart are certainly true, despite the fact that he was a Supreme Court clerk, et cetera. He also used Chapman, although it's not a public university. It did mean that there's can't be attorney-client privilege if you have a third party involved in the communication. Um, I think what he has proposed is frightening, terrifying, and that, as you said, is something that other states might try to adopt and could interfere with our elections for sure. And that I would go with what Judge Carter said, which is that it makes it look like he and the former president, Trump, are guilty of committing a crime. If John Eastman was going to Hogwarts, the sorting hat would put him in Slytherin. I mean, this is somebody who's all about power and doesn't care about country. And, you know, he might be a smart man, but he's not a wise man. Here we have somebody, he didn't just, you know, say the quiet part out loud. He put it down in writing. He wrote the plan, not just for the 2020 coup, but for the 2024 one. And shame on him. He ought to be soundly reviled. And frankly, he should be a target for prosecution, depending on how the evidence unfolds. Agreed. Well, thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Winebanks, Joyce Vance, and me, Kimberly Atkins Store. Barb McQuaid will be back next week. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag Sisters in Law. Also, don't forget to go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our pale blue tea or all our other goodies. Please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Blue Land, Noom, Helix, and Smith AI. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them because they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps other people find our show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law. Okay. You, you've trained the men in your life very well. Bob and <laughs> My Allie. men can Seriously. all cook. I just wasn't sure anybody could pull off a full dinner, you know, like with vegetables so, and a salad and stuff. Michael decided he would finally, for the first time, help me with a HelloFresh meal. But he said he was helping only because he said, I cannot stand another sauteed chicken. Please put it in the air fryer. And I said, if you want it in the air fryer, then you're going to have to do it. He said, okay. How do I do it? I said, well, first put some parchment paper down because I like I don't like it getting so messy. Mm-hmm. So he did. And then I breaded, I put panko crust and stuff on it. And I put it on the fryer thing without looking, put it in the air fryer, and it immediately caught fire because he had used <gasps> wax paper. That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> wax paper goes up. Yes, Amazing. has a very and, low smoke point. Oh, my God. It was black, <laughs> you know, big flakes coming out, huge flames. Luckily, did the I air had fryer on, survive? It, it did because it's, I have a very fancy front-loading thing. 
and I couldn't decide whether I should slam it shut that it would be airtight and that would shut the, but I was wearing a big, heavy asbestos mitt and I just started tamping it down (laughs) and there's black things flying all over. Luckily it, it, the chicken cooked. It was fine. I mean, I took it out. (laughs) Wait, you ate the chicken after all of this? Y'all ate it? Because the chicken, it was just the paper burned all around it, but the chicken didn't catch fire. And what did Michael say, Jill? He said nothing. He was like, I think what what he was thinking is, well, now you'll never ask me to help again because this is what happens. And he's probably right. I will never ask him to help again. 